This episode is all about the art of endings. And I wanted to explore the complicated ways our minds and our bodies respond to loss, change, and grief. But even just the word itself, ending, comes with a whole lot of baggage. When I say it out loud, I can physically feel the word opening up a deep sadness inside of me. If I try to bury all those feelings, they become heavier and pull me down into a cycle of negativity. So how do we break out of this loop? Should we break that loop? And what would it look like if we embraced the reality of loss in our lives? I'm Valeria, and if you struggle navigating endings, then you are not alone. Today, I'll be talking to trauma psychotherapist Hilary Jacobs Handel to get insight on how our body responds to grief and how we might help it heal. I'm also speaking with the wonderful Whitney Port, who has been so gracious in sharing her own journey through loss. These days, Whitney is a social media entrepreneur and has her own podcast called Wit Wit, where she's holding honest and vulnerable conversations about motherhood, the industry, and even grief. Before we dive in, um, our listeners will know you from your time of the hills and the city. You were like such an iconic part of those shows. Uh, But can you tell us a little bit about the path you've been taking since then? Yeah, yeah. So I was on this show and it opened up this whole world to me. And I really wanted to continue my, my career in fashion. So I started a clothing line. After I had that clothing line, well, which I had launched with my father. My father was in the fashion industry. He grew up in licensing and manufacturing. So I grew up working in his offices and the factories, just like really learning the business behind the mass market, like mass fashion industry. So I built my clothing line with him and then he got sick and passed away in 2013. And this was like a couple years after the show was ending when I was really soul searching. And that was a really, really hard, like pivotal moment in my life. And I was like, what am I going to do next? So the next couple of years was a lot of soul searching and I ended up getting pregnant and had a really... I don't want to say like controversial because now I think it's very normal to have like a really complicated, like just not love your pregnancy essentially Mm. and feel okay kind of venting about it. And so I basically then started this career in like building a community around being vulnerable while always maintaining my roots in fashion. And I have my podcast with Wit, which is really really like the heart of what I do beyond some of the the conversations I have around motherhood and the complications behind that identity shift. Like really my podcast is where I have my most meaningful conversations with people that I look up to, people that I want to learn from, probably quite like what you're doing. You know, I feel fortunate to have the platform to be able to have conversations with people I might never have the time to have that conversation with. But I'm just doing so many different things, like throwing things at walls and seeing what sticks, you know? I I love it. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate most about you and just like your presence online because you're very open and vulnerable about your journey. I find that you created the space of just the unknown and feeling comfortable in there and just learning to navigate it every day rather than you know, trying to find that, okay, this is my definition and this is what I do and this is it. 
something that I've noticed with you um, and the way you conduct yourself, you're extremely emotionally intelligent. And I just wonder if, was it something that was given to you in your childhood? First of all, thank you. That's like one of the nicest things that anyone has ever said to me. But it's 100% my parents. Like, while having parents now is, I mean, obviously I lost my dad, so my life has changed so much. But I had a really, really ideal childhood. Like, I had such amazing parents who were, one, so in love. I think that how they modeled their behavior and how they spoke to each other was they were so mindful about it. Also, I grew up with my grandparents raising me as well. My grandparents lived with us pretty much up until I was a teenager. They lived with us. They had like their own little quarters in the house. And I think having their wisdom and having their demeanor also, like I was having such mature conversations with them at a young age and I always sought them out for that. Like I vividly remember I used to go to this lake in Missouri every summer, this like random lake and visit them. And I, some of my most meaningful conversations were sitting on this porch with them at night when everyone else had been to sleep and they were sitting outside. And I think I just always love connecting with them. And my parents, they just knew how to talk to me. It sounds very foreign to me, but I kind of, yes, but it also made me emotional. Like when you're talking about your grandparents and the kind of relationship, it's so beautiful because especially back in the day, I feel like survival mode was such a, I mean, we're now in our own survival mode in today's society. But back then I find that it was even more like on a different scale. So it's just amazing to see that there were those kind of family units. Yeah. I mean, my mom had little things, you know, like Mm -hmm. no childhood is perfect, obviously. And there were things where I would feel like certain senses of abandonment at times being one of a lot. But then they also rescued me a lot in a way because it was so idyllic. And I think everything was so sunny and 75 degrees. Like once I had to deal with real stuff and like had to deal with real grief, Mm. I feel like I didn't really have a lot of those tools to deal with it. And I think that's when I started to hit certain lows because I didn't know how to navigate real things happening to me. Whitney's experienced a number of difficult losses over the past decade. Her father passing away, three miscarriages, and the death of her father-in-law, all of which she's spoken about openly. So when I speak about an ending you've experienced, I mean, you were very open about your miscarriage. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned even, um, you know, you losing your father. Yes. And I kind of want to take you back to how you dealt with that kind of grief and that ending, especially coming from, you know, a household that didn't necessarily give you the tools to handle those. So how did that feel back then? I'm sure that you are in a different place now. Of course. But just taking you back. It's so crazy because things in those moments feel like, especially with my dad passing, which is a huge grief that I've experienced. And then with the multiple miscarriages, which was like the second phase of grief in my adulthood, I have to learn from them, 
but it took me so much time to actually get there. Like my grief with my dad, for instance, is never ending. Like, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I can't get myself to look at that as like an ending or kind of even like put an end to that because I need to keep his spirit alive. So grief in that respect, like when you lose someone, for me, it's more cyclical and it's more of taking it as it comes and not necessarily looking at it as an ending, but like figuring it out how it gets breathed into your life now, like when you allow it in and when it's not time to take it out. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to set those kinds of boundaries, you know, because I think that a lot of people have a tendency to push it down and say like, not now, not now, not now, or don't want to release it or don't feel like being vulnerable or feel like they're being a burden. And I think that it's it's so important that you have those moments to release and not feel shame after them. How do you feel, because you mentioned with the grief with your father, is it different from your miscarriages? Was it a different process for you that you had to go through? The thing that the miscarriage did for me was it it brought up my previous grief. Like it made me just feel this deep sadness for like death almost, mm. you know, like it made me just feel like uh, another loss, another thing that I just like can't control. Um, so that's, that's what it was for me. It just felt like another real hit, but the rebound from that, like that I could look at as a real ending because I needed to, I got so low after that. Like it made me so depressed. It made me live in the future so much that I was like, I need to be done with this or else I'm just going to like live in this grief forever. I'm going to live in this like what if phase forever and I don't want to be like that, you know? And so I had to really face it and I had to put it behind me. And I decided after that, honestly, which is really kind of a hard decision to make, but not really to talk a lot about my feelings about the miscarriages and then what I'm planning to do now, just because I I didn't want this like constant conversation in people's heads without me, because I knew it would be happening. And I didn't want like this to be a conversation in my life anymore. I needed to take the control back. So now like Timmy and I are, are dealing with things on our own and it's a new beginning and a new chapter. Everything that happened in the past is in the past and I'm done with it. And I honestly like, I like talking about it in this respect because it's important so that people can realize that you will eventually move off of something and that you will eventually realize that these are things that make us actually appreciate life instead Mm -hmm. of defeating us. But I don't really like to lament on it myself because there's literally nothing I can do about what happened. Yeah, I I feel like you've covered and you shared so much about where you at in your journey of healing and, you know, dealing with all of that. So I definitely feel like it probably feels so already processed and kind of old news to continue talking about it, uh, which I apologize if we keep like going back to No, it. not at all. Like these conversations I hope to have like forever because it's so important for women, especially you want to hear from women who have been through it and you want to hear from women who have been on the other side because I think that's what really gives hope. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important for me to have these conversations as much as sometimes I'm like, 
oh, like that happened. It also, it makes me happy because I feel like I've really moved on so much. Like I've grown so much. I've learned so much. And it makes me feel like any other hurdle in the future is also just a phase, you know, and that we do have resilience to get through it and that it does actually make us like more interesting people, I think. Whitney invites us to ask, how do we resist that urge to repress our grief? How do we help our body to release it and feel it in the here and now? To help answer questions as profound as these, I really wanted to get an expert's perspective. My second guest, Hilary Jacobs Handel, is a trauma psychotherapist based in New York City. I really wanted to bring you on here to help me unpack a little bit um, the whole aspect, the emotional aspect of endings, because I have friends that experienced big endings with grief, losing somebody. Um, I myself feel like I experience small endings weekly, you know, if it's just Mm -hmm. seeing how I'm leaving maybe know, an older version of myself behind or certain friendships, certain relationships. And I just noticed just by kind of observing that endings are all around us. And it's not something we observe. It's not something we're aware of, especially when they're smaller. We kind of just let them, you know, get in there, but we are not necessarily processing them. And they leave a little mark in us in the way we behave, in the way we approach certain future situation even. So I wanted to chat about endings and um, hopefully to bring a bit more awareness and tools to be able to identify and deal with them. So what are the types of endings that people experience? Such a wonderful and important topic. Let me just speak for myself, uh, some of my endings and how they affected me when I was younger, when I didn't understand emotions and how they deal with endings now. For example, a big ending, my maybe my first ending when I was a little girl was the death of my dog. And at the time, we didn't really do sadness in my family. My mother was endlessly optimistic and would try to help me feel better, but there wasn't really space. She didn't say, oh, it's that's so sad and it's okay to feel sad when your dog dies. And as a result, I got anxious. And that type of pattern, which we these things start in our childhoods because we're wired in our experience, translated to other losses that I've had. My first marriage ended in divorce. That's a huge loss on so many levels. It's not only the ending of a marriage, but it's the ending of a fantasy that I had from a little girl of, of creating a happy family that would last forever the death of loved ones, the loss of a home that we grew up in uh, when our parents maybe sell our childhood home, the loss and the ending of a cherished object that we had that we don't have anymore because it goes missing. So endings, like you said, happen all day, every day, if we pay attention to them. For years, Hillary has spoken passionately about our culture's lack of emotional education. She actually wrote a book called It's Not Always Depression. And in it, Hillary lays out a tool she calls the change triangle. 
We can use it to better identify what it is we're actually going through when we experience these extreme emotions. So the book takes people through moving down from the triangle from disconnected and anxious and shamed and guilty states down to the bottom of the triangle, which you can imagine kind of if you superimpose an upside down triangle on your body, the bottom of the triangle has these core emotions, which are these biological, you can think of them as programs. They provide data about how our environment is affecting us. And it's through those very special emotions that when we learn, and we can all learn with some techniques that we practice for the rest of our lives, how to honor them at the very least and validate them because those core emotions are the doorway back to our authentic self. So picture an upside down triangle, like an ice cream cone. The top left angle of the triangle is labeled defenses. And these are actions we take to avoid or repress our emotions. Then you have the top right labeled inhibitory emotions, which include anxiety, guilt, and shame. What lies buried beneath both of these at the apex of the upside-down triangle are our core emotions, emotions like fear, excitement, or grief. But I wanted to know what comes next. What do we do with those core emotions once we've acknowledged their existence? When endings happen and we feel sad, we don't have to carry that sadness necessarily in front of us. It doesn't have to be the leader. We can kind of carry it with us like a, like a child, like a sad child that we might have just under our arms, that we're just like we are with the sadness, but also we're going about what we have to do in the world, raising kids. God knows when you're raising children, you have all these feelings about life that happens to you and you go on and you have to try to be the best parent that you can be. So the humans are amazing. We can do a lot of things at once. It's funny because growing up, um, I always had this thing where whenever I felt sad or I felt stressed or I felt overwhelmed, I start crying. I can't even control it. It's just my body just releases without, like my mind can't catch up to prevent it before it happens. And as I was growing up, I used to be so ashamed of it Mm. uh, and look at it in such a negative way. But today, as an adult, I'm so thankful that it's still this body reaction that Mm -hmm. I cannot control, that I cannot, you know, put a label on or rationalize it, turn on and off. It just happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to me is kind of the signal of like, okay, it's time to stop. It's time to look around what's going on uh, because my body is pointing out things that my mind doesn't want to necessarily see or deal with. Yes. So um, that's been a wonderful thing. And even for my kids, we, when I, you know, when my kids see me cry, they already know. They come, they're like, are you sad? What happened today? Mm. <laughs> like, oh my okay. gosh, it's so cute. I told Hillary a bit about my physical response to grief. So I wanted to ask Whitney about her own. When you felt that the grief, was it a physical feeling for you or mental? So for me, it's like I kind of get this pit in my stomach. Um, It feels like a sort of a bad butterflies feeling. 
I would feel it there and then I would feel, yeah, really just exhausted. Like mm. no energy, lethargic, like my body weighed a million pounds. And then for me, I'm like a big crier and I need that release. And I think that if you can cry, it's like <laughs> the best thing to do. If you can allow yourself that time to just like really fully let go and you will feel that moment where you hit that spot where you're like, okay, I'm totally done. Like I'm drained. And then there's like, obviously that emotional hangover afterwards, try to go get outside like, or break a sweat or something. But it's a physical and it's a mental thing. And I just need to kind of be in my own feelings. A lot of our intense physical responses to grief have to do with our nervous system and this ongoing battle between our body and our mind to self-regulate. Hillary helped remind me of this and offered a bit of age-old wisdom. So you know you're like gallivanting, walking around your house, and boom, you stub your toe. And it doesn't hurt right away. It starts, but then you feel it and it starts to build and the pain is going up and up and you're like wondering how bad is this going to get? Mm -hmm. And then it crescendos and then it starts to feel better. And we may even breathe automatically because breathing helps us regulate pain. That's why they teach breathing for childbirth, right? So we breathe and then we let it go and the wave comes. And that's exactly how it is with the core emotion, particularly sadness we focus on the sadness in the body. We take these long, slow, deep belly breaths into our belly and out as we watch and stay with it and it rises and falls. And then when we ride the entire wave of a core emotion, we drop into that beautiful area that's located at the bottom of the change triangle which is called the open-hearted state of the authentic self. In nerdy, science-y, jargony terms, it's the state of our nervous system being regulated mm. and balanced. And we feel in those states calm and that we can be compassionate to ourselves and to others and curious and connected to ourselves and others. And that's the state that we want to spend more and more time in. For Hillary, the best way to reach that state of calm, grounded regulation is to push past the surface of defensiveness and of those inhibitory emotions, anxiety, guilt, shame, to truly settle in whatever it is that we're feeling. And when I think about inhibitory emotions, I can understand how endings might bring up anxiety. Anxiety is about how we'll go on or where we go next even our own mortality, or how they might evoke guilt, guilt about not being present for others that are grieving or about not recovering fast enough, survival's guilt for still being here when someone else is gone. But I felt less certain about that third emotion, shame. So I wanted to ask Whitney about how shame played a role in her process of grieving the death of her father. How about shame? Because I feel like when I heard shame, I actually was a little surprised. Uh, guilt, I kind of understood where that can come from. Anxiety, I can understand. But shame was interesting to me. Did you feel like you encountered that? I felt shame because of my naivety. Like, I felt shame that I didn't really connect to what was happening, like, especially in that year. So my dad he was diagnosed with stage four cancer 
And then a year later, he passed away. But I, like, was convinced he was going to be fine. Like, until Mm -hmm. the last two weeks of his life, like, there was a mental block for me where I was not even thinking about him dying, which was just totally unrealistic given his diagnosis. And then I went on this work trip. I came home, and it was like, he's, this is it. And... I have a lot of shame and regret in feeling naive that I didn't kind of do everything I could in that last year or like have certain conversations with him or really understand what was going on. Like I feel shameful for my like immaturity almost. Mm. But I also have to remember that that was probably an emotional wall that I was putting up so that I didn't have to really deal with obviously the scariest thing that could happen. What was something that people, your friends, your loved ones did that helped you and some things that didn't help? I think some things that didn't help were certain people in my life saying, oh, well, you can just try again or kind of already like suggesting to me what my future should be before I've even gotten there. You don't need to be solution-based at that point. You just need to be someone that is either physically there for them if they need that or or lending an ear and just telling them, listen, I'm here for you. And if you've been through it, I've been there. If you need to talk, I am here for you. And like literally that's it. But you don't need to do the constant check-ins. You don't need to share all your stories. You really have to wait for the person, I think, to come to you because we're all so different. It's like a lot of people who feel like they need to help. It's like in their nature, they have like this physical response to like need to be there for you. And I urge you, if you are that person, to just like take a deep breath and think about what will really serve that person. Self-awareness, I tell you, will solve all the world's problems. Trying to solve people's sadness doesn't actually come from a place of trying to help the other person. Usually, this impulse has less to do with easing somebody else's grief and more to do with protecting our own emotions. And that's not just how Whitney and I feel. Hillary has seen the same thing in her work and in herself. How can I support a friend or a loved one when they're going through a period of grief or loss? So... I've written about this quite a lot because for so long I tried to fix people. Anytime someone was sad or experiencing some sort of anything, I would be like, you know, it would would make me uncomfortable because I struggled with sadness. And so people try to fix things. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. If you, you hear all the complaints with women saying about men, they're always trying to fix. They don't listen because the sadness makes them uncomfortable and they're not aware of that. It's the hero syndrome, right? We come to save Exactly. And what they don't realize is that that hero syndrome is coming from a place of vulnerability and that the intolerance of what it means to sit with sadness, because emotions, one of the qualities of emotions is that they're contagious. Grief is not a problem to be solved. It's a process. Sometimes it can feel like we're being pressured by others to rush through our process instead of living in it fully and honestly. But even though we can fix grief, we can still improve the ways that we grieve. 
The first time I had the chance to see a different kind of grieving in action was at my son's school. I really wanted to share that story with Whitney. It actually reminded me, um, we had in our school, one of the coaches passed away unexpectedly, and the school threw an event, and it called the Celebration of Life. And I think it was my first time just seeing a reframe of the concept of, you know, death and just dealing with it. And Mm -hmm. so it was this beautiful event. Everyone was wearing white, and it was truly like a very happy, Happy. like heartwarming. Mm -hmm. All the kids were there, like all the families were encouraged to bring their children and people made speeches and remembered certain like, you know, funny moments. His relatives shared kind of a little bit of his life journey. It felt like a different experience than I know from just movies or just from what we grew up with. Totally, where you just like visualize a casket with like everyone in black, like standing around a gravesite. Yeah. And it felt a bit like we're healing together. You yes, know, it was already yes. like the process started as a community. That part of death can feel like really, really intoxicating and can feel really, really good at that time. And then for the family that's feeling it after those phases are over is when like the grief really sets in. Yeah. Cause I feel like grief can feel very isolating. Very. Well, because you don't want to be a burden to anyone. Or at least Mm. like for me, I felt like I didn't want to vent. I just felt like this depressing being that no one was going to want to be around. Loss is something that we can best navigate together. But sometimes the grief that comes with loss can make us feel alone. When an ending arrives, so often it's something far outside of our control. In childhood, when our brains are so emotional and we're so vulnerable, if we have emotions and we are too alone with those emotions, that's when we invent these defenses, which are brilliant and adaptive for the time. But as we get older to be adults, we have much more capacity to handle emotions than we may believe because we're still thinking about it like we did when we were children. So we may be surprised at what we really can do. And that's why the change triangle is a self-help tool until we reach our limit. And then if we want to go beyond it, then we find help. Because since many of these trauma symptoms like anxiety and depression and eating disorders and addictions developed in utter aloneness, we need to undo the aloneness with a person who's trained in how to really be with someone during an emotion in a way that feels safe Mm. and where there's compassion, no judgment, nothing jarring because people go deep. It's a very vulnerable state. Your whole nervous system will experience a little mini reorganization and we have these spirals into core states of being, these like, they're almost like religious experiences in some ways of expansiveness and connection. And it just changes everything when our nervous system is calm and we are, we have this connection, we can think and feel and relate all at the same time. It's beautiful. And uh, everybody can learn a little bit about emotions to make them a little bit more manageable and understandable. 
When faced with an ending, we find ourselves sitting with emotions like anxiety or guilt or shame, and then we might just float there on the surface. Hillary taught me that our true feelings about endings lie much deeper at our core. If we stop at the surface, we're basically closing the book in the middle of a chapter. We're pausing at a painful but unresolved and unsatisfying moment in a story that continues on. There are so many endings taking place all around us, all the time, once we don't even realize they're happening. Identifying those endings and reframing them as change, which is life's one and only constant, can help us to adjust and, in our own time, turn towards the next chapter. How do you think we can balance the sadness of an ending and the excitement of a new beginning? That's a good question. I think like instead of looking at it as a balancing them, I think you can look at them as like working side by side and allowing them to both come in when they need to come in. I think that the sadness, you want to figure out how to like process that and how to get yourself out of that. And that's not by like toxic positivity or like shaming yourself for having those sad feelings. That's just feeling those feelings saying, it's okay, I'm feeling this way. It's normal. It's natural. What do I need to do to take care of myself? And then in those happy moments to be really, really mindful about why you're happy and how making that decision about that ending put you in this position. Grieving itself can be a kind of art, difficult to put into words, but beautiful. It's a way of showing our love for something or someone, even after they're gone. Grief isn't something we can fix or solve or finish, but this never-ending journey of opening ourselves to others and to a world that tries to wound us. And much like art, grieving is something we can improve at by practicing, not just individually, but as a society. Instead of isolating us, grief can be the thing that connects us. Not Alone is produced by Valeria Inc. and Frequency Media. Thank you to everyone involved and thank you for listening. I'm Valeria Lipovetsky, and always remember, you are not alone.